The king ordered the chief of his courts to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen, some were from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel reserved, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. All right. Good morning, Christ Church. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in deep into the story. We have been taking the time to try to understand and see and know uh, the, the stories that comprise up the larger biblical story. We are on chapter 18. For those of you who are um, uh, reading along, uh, if you are just trying to tag along in the Bible itself, uh, today we are going to be covering the entire book of Daniel uh, in the next... Yeah, we're going to be covering the whole book of Daniel uh, today. Here, now, as we keep tracking with God's story, we are trying to see and understand the larger picture of God's big grand story by looking at these smaller stories that happen within it. And hopefully by understanding some of these smaller stories, we realize how our small story fits into God's bigger story. And so we've been tracking and traveling last summer, this summer, with this story. And 
the reality is the stories of late, the way that both the grand narrative and the smaller stories, it's been kind of a, a bummer lately, right? For those of you who have been tracking with us over these past couple of weeks, this is what we would consider to be a low point in the story. We have, just as kind of a quick recap for you, we have been looking at over these last few weeks how God's people had made some really poor decisions. They started doing some really nasty, stupid stuff. And as a result, there was discipline. There was punishment because they invited into their lives some really nasty brokenness. God allowed that brokenness to really take a hold of them. And as a result, they were brought into what we call exile or the Babylonian exile. Simply put, the Babylonians were this big empire, an ancient empire with lots of power, lots of economic power, martial power, lots of power. And they came into the region dealing with God's people. They laid siege to Jerusalem is what the scriptures say. They came against God's people at Jerusalem and attacked them. The Bible says it like this in the beginning of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Simply put, Babylon won. Babylon comes in. Babylon lays siege to the Jewish people living in the area in Jerusalem. And Babylon wins. They sack Jerusalem. They rip out all of the gold, all the values. All the, 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 they simply go through and find all the vessels of the house of God. That would be all the really rich and ornate things. And they actually sack the city, take all of that stuff, and bring it back to Babylon, where they enjoy the spoils of war. Now, not only did they rip out and take away physical spoils of war in terms of things, they also took with them people. The Babylonians took with them, ripped out of their homes, ripped out of their country, the Jewish people. They came in and they took anyone of influence, educating, education, uh, anyone who was an artisan, anyone who had any martial power, anyone who is of influence in the land and city of Jerusalem, any Jews who could really make trouble for them, they took out of their home and transplanted to the city of Babylon where they now kept them as slaves. They left behind the the marginalized, the destitute, the poor, people who really couldn't do that much without the support and the backing of these powerful and influential Jews who are now sitting in Babylon as slaves. God's people are decimated. The temple that once was the center of their faith has been burned to the ground, torn apart, stone by stone. Jerusalem is in rubble. And families have been quite literally torn apart as people are wrenched from their homes and shuffled off to foreign territory. 
as a whole, God's people are facing a crisis. A crisis of faith. They're looking at themselves, they're looking at their circumstances, and they're saying, Oh my gosh, what gives? They're looking at themselves in their situation. Their cousins just got left behind. They've been ripped out and transplanted to Babylon. Their city is in ruins. Their God, it looks like, has been defeated. And they are experiencing anxiety, confusion. How could this even happen? The God of our ancestors who has delivered us time and time and time again, and now he loses? This doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. Families are ripped apart. There's anxiety. There's loss. There's mourning. As people mourn the death of relatives, the death of relationships, as people mourn the loss of the city that they have held on to as the grounding Jewish identity. God's people, they're having a crisis here. As they look in the mirror, as they look in their surroundings. They're asking all sorts of questions, trying to make sense of their circumstances. Did our God lose? I mean, like, lose to the Babylonian gods? How? Should we not have believed in this God all along? Maybe we should have believed in the Babylonian gods. They're the ones who won. Maybe our worldview, our culture, our our habits, our values, the, the way in which we live our lives, our worldview is just wrong. I mean, looking at things as they are now, What does it even mean to be part of God's people, to be Jewish anymore? God, what's going on? Why? Why did this happen? Where are you? This is a crisis of faith. I was watching a movie last night, and it was a movie. The girls were both down. They had gone to bed, and I was up late watching Netflix. And I turned on the movie, and it was not a very good movie. But I watched it anyways. You know when you're deep enough in, you can't stop? It's like, oh, I'm there, so we're going to do it. So I kept watching this movie. And as part of this movie, there was a moment of crisis, right? There's a problem. There's a crisis. And the main character has this crisis Moment, And the way the movies portray this is awesome. And everybody has seen this and experienced this in one way or another. There's a moment when the main character has this crisis moment. And he breaks out of his apartment and he runs out into the street and it's raining. Of course it's raining. Why is it raining? It just is because it's a crisis moment. And it's dark and it's night. And he looks up at the sky and he says, why? And of course what happens Thunder and lightning flash across the sky and his face lights up and he's just sitting there. Ah, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? You've seen this before? Maybe you've done this before? I've done it. There wasn't lightning and thunder. It wasn't rain. But have you ever taken a moment 
in confusion and in angst and in anxiety and yelled at God, God, what's going on? Why? Where are you? What's happening? Did you ever do that before? I have. If you haven't yet, you will. For just as we have mountaintop moments, moments in our faith, in our journey, where we are at top of the mountain and it's joyous and it's ecstatic and it's exciting. And and mountains, when you think of mountains, it's always a clear and beautiful, crisp day. And you can see for miles and everything makes sense and it's just gorgeous and faith makes sense and God makes sense and, and it's a mountaintop moment. You ever have those? We call it a mountaintop moment for a reason. Just as we describe crisis of faith as a valley or a pit, a dark valley, a dark pit, so dark, so unable to see that we can't see what's right in front of us. We don't know a way forward. We don't know what's going on. And we cry out, God, where are you? Where are you in this? When I was a chaplain, uh, I spent time as a chaplain in a hospital. And this question, why? Where are you? What's going on? It was common. As I visited room to room, as I held people's hands quite literally as they were dying, these were the questions they would ask. Why is this happening? Where is God right now? I think it's fair to say that at one point in time or another, we all have mountaintop moments and we all come into a point of crisis. Just like the Jewish people were in crisis. And ultimately, we ask, just as they undoubtedly asked, God, where are you? Where are you, God? As I am in the midst of suffering. Where are you, God? As I suffer. As I hurt. And have pain. This. This is what the Jewish people were asking. Their homeland in rubble, families torn apart, slaves and servants. God, God of our ancestors, where are you as your people suffer now? Out of His goodness, God actually gives us not just one small snippet of understanding here. He, in fact, 
gives us an entire book to help address and get at this question. The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. You see, Daniel knows and understands what it means to suffer because he was one of those Jewish people. Daniel and him and his friends, they were from the tribe of Judah. They were Jews ripped from their homeland and now forced into slavery as as puppets of the Babylonian king. You see, the Babylonians figured, you know what? I've got all these slaves now, all these servants, all these Jews. We might as well reprogram them. Rip apart and destroy their identity and make them Babylonian. Loyal to the Babylonian empire, loyal to the Babylonian way of life, loyal to the Babylonian gods. And so let's begin by by gathering together some of the, the smartest and brightest of the young ones and make them into little Babylonians. This was Daniel. Daniel is one of those young men. Coming from the royal family or nobility of some sort, influential background. Take him from his family once more. Not only has he lost cousins and relatives back in his country, now in Babylon he's actually taken from his immediate family and forced into servitude in a new way. He is educated by the Babylonians. He is taught the language. He is taught the culture. He's taught how to look and think and act and be Babylonian. To forsake his identity as a Jewish young man. To mourn and suffer the loss of everything he has held dear up till now. And instead become a Babylonian. It goes so far as his own name is ripped from him. His Jewish name is replaced with a Babylonian name. Him and his friends. I mean, David, when I picture David, if I close my eyes and I think of David, I think of a young man, 13, 14, 15 years old, wandering about a palace. Afraid. Afraid for his life and the life of his family. He knows that he's in slavery and in servitude to this new king, this Nebuchadnezzar. He knows his homeland has been destroyed. He knows he needs to get good grades and say the right things and dress the right way. Because if he doesn't, he's just a slave and there'll be punishment. They've ripped away his language. He's wearing odd and weird clothes as he stumbles around the palace. He's in foreign territory. And he cries himself to sleep, saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? Because I suffer with every step I take in service to this king. And so Daniel poses the question for us. Where is God in our suffering? 
can God? Would God? Would God enter in and be close to Daniel as he suffers? As we find out, yes, he is close. You heard in the story read there that all of a sudden, it seems like God, this God who for all reasons seems to have abandoned or or lost or whatever, God seems to start showing up in Daniel's life. Daniel goes through this thing about food. To be a Jew, you have to eat a specific way. And and, and he says, I don't want to be a Babylonian. I'm Jewish. I, I have a God. So God, preserve me as I suffer now. I don't want to eat the wrong meat. So he goes to the leaders and says, I'm not going to eat your meat. Can I just be a vegetarian? And they say, fine. As long as 10 days later, you look just as good and just as healthy as everyone else. If not, there'll be punishment. David says, fair deal, I'll take it. 10 days later, Daniel and his companions look healthier appear and present themselves in such a way that attracts attention. They are wise and knowledgeable and clear-minded. And this poor, broken, suffering teenager gets recognized by the king himself as being a fine young man. Later on, that same king that same king, King Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And in his dream, he wakes up confused. He he doesn't know what to make of this dream. And so he says, bring me all the wise men, all the smarties, all the, the intelligible men of Babylon, bring them together and have them tell me what I dreamed and then tell me the interpretation of the dream. The wise men get together and say, King, you got to be kidding. You got to tell us the dream and then we'll tell you what it means. He says, No, if I tell you the dream, you can just make something up on the spot. I'm not falling for that. You, in order to know and validate that your interpretation is correct, you have to provide me with the content of the dream. The wise men say, Impossible, ain't going to happen. King says, Fine, I'll get rid of all of you. Guards, Kill all the wise men in Babylon and let's start over. Kill all the wise men, the diviners, the magicians, and all of their mentees, the young men in training. Wipe them out. That, of course, would include who? Daniel. Daniel steps forward and says, I don't know the dream and and I can't tell you the interpretation, but I have a God even now in my suffering, who can? Nebuchadnezzar says, prove it. And David does. He tells him the intricate details of his dream and then lays out the interpretation. He does this not only once, but in fact, twice for the king. And all of a sudden, through David's story, we start to see, we start to understand God might actually be present and close to those suffering. God could be close to those suffering. It happens for not only Daniel, 
but for others who are God's people, for Daniel's buddies. There's a moment where the king makes a statue and he says, hey, statue, awesome, everybody's got to worship the statue. Daniel's buddies say, we're not going to do it. King says, fine, execute them, throw them in the furnace. You guys know this story? These three guys go into the furnace. They throw them in. The king looks and he sees four guys. He says, hey, who jumped in after? I thought there were only three. Turns out there's an angel there. And that these three young men are preserved and protected. That even as they are facing death, they, 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 they are foreign land, foreign influences, and they are trying to hold on to their identity as God's people. And as a result, they are willing to embrace their own execution. Talk about suffering. They're going to be burned alive. And yet God shows up. And God protects them. And we begin to see over and over and over again examples of how God shows up in the midst of people's suffering. The writing on the wall happens. Daniel in the lion's den. You guys heard of that one before? You know Daniel's in the lion's den, that story? This is, this is at the end of Daniel's life. This is in his old age. By the point of Daniel in the lion's den, he's gone through some really hard stuff. Every moment and every step of his life has been suffering. Every time he gets threatened or people work against him, he's tried to be, people have tried to execute him. Now they come up with a plot to get rid of him again, and they end up throwing him in a lion's den. And rather than being eaten by lions, God shows up. And he protects and he preserves Daniel. Is Daniel faces suffering after suffering. God shows up amidst the suffering. There could be a lot of themes to this book of Daniel. A lot of things to understand here about how God directs history, how public service is good, and, and how young men can be influential and, and God can work over the lifetime of a person. And there's so much there. But of all the themes, of everything that we could sit down and seek to understand, there is one that stands out above the others. It is this. Despite the fact that we do indeed suffer, and we can't always see God, despite our confusion and our hurt and our pain, God is with us. He does not keep our suffering and hurt far away. God is not in some heaven light years away in some other dimension. He doesn't get close to us. No. God is Emmanuel with us. With us in our mountaintop joyous moments and with us in our pits and our valleys and our suffering. Beyond all comprehension, beyond all understanding, God willingly subjects Himself 
and steps close to us as we hurt, as we mourn, as we suffer. God shows up and is present. Not far away, not distant, not up in the skies in some thundercloud. He is beside us. The Scriptures would say He is closer than the shadow at your right hand. He is close to the brokenhearted, those with a contrite spirit. God's not far away. He's right here in our lives. He's close to us as we endure flames and fires and furnaces. He's close to us when we face the lions. God is close to us when we are poor, marginalized, and outcast. He is so intent on being close to you and understanding you and having compassion upon you in your suffering that He would subject His own self to suffering at our hands. God is close in your suffering to you because He knows what it is to suffer. He found that out in the person of Jesus Christ in a way unlike any other. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. He was willing to endure and suffer the cross itself. He endured the suffering of the cross that one day He might bring an end to our suffering. He became flesh and blood, body, bones, sinews, to be close to us, to be close to you. Someday in your life, it may not be right now, but it will come. A moment of crisis, a moment of pain and hurt. And you'll be tempted to run out in the street and look up in the sky and yell, Why? What's happening? Where are you? In that moment, when that comes, think of Daniel. Read his story. Read the story of Daniel and how God draws close to his people even as they suffer. Because He is a loving and compassionate God. Some of you might be experiencing great suffering right now. I know some of you are experiencing suffering right now. I want you to hear this morning. God is with you. He's not far away. He's here. He's here working in the lives of His suffering people broken people working out his bigger grander story 
Let's pray together. Let's join in prayer and pray and lift up to God all those who are suffering right now. Please pray with me. Gracious and eternal Father, we confess to you that too often we welcome suffering and pain into our own lives through our decisions and foolish actions. Sometimes we are mere victims, bystanders who are affected, hurt, mourning. We ask in your mercy and your compassion for us. Help us know that you are close to us. Help us know your comfort and your love. Help us know that you are at work to protect, to heal, and to save your people. Help us remember the story of Daniel, how you were close to that young man. Throughout the entirety of his life, you worked through and amidst his own suffering to bring about a future even for Daniel that you would comfort him and protect him from the, li- the mouths of lions. So too, work in our lives. Open our eyes to see that you are close to your suffering people. We pray this not only for ourselves, but those that we sit beside and for all your suffering church. For all suffering people they might know you are a good God, close at hand. Jesus, we ask this, and we pray this all according to your grace 